The hard part is diversifying the content. So if we just have the same character in an environment doing everything, it's not going to work, right? So how do you actually create hundreds or thousands of variations of that character model with different behavior and things like that? That's been really the core focus of how we're, we're thinking about our technology. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show where we learn about making machine learning models work in the real world. I'm your host, Lucas Bewell. Dale Kim is the co-founder and CEO of AI.Reverie, a startup that specializes in creating high-quality synthetic training data for computer vision algorithms. Before that, he was a senior data scientist at the New York Times, and before that, he got his PhD in computer science from Brown University, focusing on machine learning and Bayesian statistics. He's going to talk about tools that will advance machine learning progress, and he's going to talk about synthetic data. I'm super excited for this. I was looking at your LinkedIn and you have a little bit of an unusual path, right? You did a a (laughs) liberal arts um, undergrad. Can you say a little bit about, I I feel like I come across people quite a lot that kind of want to make, you know, career transitions into um, machine learning and related Mm -hmm. field. Mm -hmm. Um, How was that for you? What, what prompted you to do it? And um, that's a great question. Um, Wow. Searching back. I mean, so, so I actually got, I studied literature in college, so I actually did not, have a lot of computer science background. And I've taken a lot of twists and turns in my life. Um, uh, Sarah Lawrence College is a pretty unique educational system. It's like really small class sizes, Socratic system, liberal arts, humanities. Uh, so I've, I think from that, I garnered just a curiosity about the world. Uh, and then afterwards, um, I, had, uh, I did a lot of uh, research in schizophrenia. So I studied mental illness and I was like trying to like, I was sticking people inside MRI scanners and then analyzing their brain data. Uh, and I spent about, you know, four years doing that uh, after college. It's and, and again, transition, like, you know, after college, no skills, working at a wine shop <laughs> and then over time volunteering at a lab and getting into that position where I started actually publishing papers and really getting into computational neuroscience. And then wow. I wanted to be a doctor at some point, uh, but then decided at the last minute to do a, a study machine learning because mm-hmm. I was actually really interested in understanding the um, underlying fundamental aspects of intelligence. What, the, what does that mean? How can you actually model things like that? So instead of doing a, a, you know, going to medical school, I decided to just do a PhD in computer science. After that, I wanted to try journalism, trying to see if I can apply and build tools to help journalism. So I worked in the New York Times for a few years. And then finally, I was like, okay, I really want to do this stuff, synthetic data. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it's a lot of twists and turns, I have to say. It's not a, uh, uh, it's not a you know, I would have never been able to tell you this is where I would have ended up 10 years ago. So. It's been it's been that's so cool. That's an impressive skill to be able to completely switch fields like that. I I think I'd be too afraid maybe to to make a leap. Uh, Yeah, I think (laughs) I think I think it's it's not easy. (laughs) Let me just be clear. It's not easy (laughs) learning. You know, the math, for example, with machine learning. Yeah, what point did you learn the math? Because I feel like that's a place where a lot of people feel nervous. Like, yeah, math as an undergrad, or how did that? Not really. I, I didn't actually take a single math course in undergrad, but I, so I had to learn. And I, and I actually, my PhD was Bayesian nonparametrics, which really gets into pretty complicated math with variational calculus and things like that. So um, basically I, I suffered <laughs> and I spent a lot of hours just learning. I took some classes as I could uh, during schizophrenia stuff, during the research of that 
aspect of my life, I had to learn some level of statistics and math and probability to be able to analyze that data. But then once you get into like the, the machine learning stuff, and especially in that area I was in, you really needed to up your game. And then that's where I spent a lot of time trying to play catch up. So, um, and you know, I learned a lot and it was an, an unbelievably fruitful experience, I would say. Uh, so Do you have any very tips rewarding. for people um, trying to learn math? Like, like sort mm. of outside of um, like an undergrad curriculum? I think actually one of the best ways for me was actually appreciating the beauty of math. So a lot of people are scared of math and, and thinking, oh my God, I have to learn these rules and first, second derivatives, I have to like memorize these things. But once you get into more of the theoretical stuff and you start thinking about like, you know, uh, basically like, I, I'm not sure if you've heard of these like uh, insane millennium problems and, you know, yeah, P equals NP or like the prime number, you know, stuff like that. Uh, the Riemann hypothesis. There's so much beauty there and you can actually read about it and understand how, how challenging some of these problems have been and how profound they are. So uh, like, you know, from being able to appreciate it from an aesthetic level, I think helped me give the patience I need to learn it a little bit more. So, but you need to be patient. You, it, your brain is not gonna just pick this stuff up if you've never been exposed to it, <laughs> unless you're, you know, unless you're a lot smarter than I am, so, which might be the case, yeah. So. Sounds unlikely, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. For a long time, I've had a real interest in synthetic data, which is what your company does. But how did you get interested in synthetic data working um, yeah. journalism? So my, my advisor actually at, at Brown uh, was a computer vision person. So I, I got exposed to a lot of the problems there. And so you go to these conferences and it's always the same data sets being used. Mm-hmm. Always, this, you know, and one thing I actually wanted to do was one day build my own video game. So I, I, I wanted to be able to actually create worlds. Um, and I wanted to see if you can integrate machine learning. That, that was an early interest of mine as I was learning this stuff. Uh, and I, I've always believed simulation was such a powerful tool for a lot of things. So at some point in the New York Times, uh, I had a really great experience there learning all sorts of things, uh, amazing community of people. And then from there, I really wanted to do this thing I've been dreaming of doing. And I knew that there was such a huge issue. Um, you know, the way I look at sometimes how science advances, I think, is actually through tools. Um, I mean, you're, you know, you're building a great one with WandDB. And I think, you know, if you think about the microscope, for example, right, before that, like, who, who, you know, there's entire fields that open up. And, and so what I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping to figure out a way to create a sort of a simulation platform that can one day be used by a lot of people. And at some point, uh, you know, just introduce new, new people to ideas about how you can train computer vision algorithms. Uh, without the standard process of, of, you know, collecting data in the real world and where simulation can actually play a really useful role. So I think that really excited me. And I actually think that there could be a lot of really important advancements and acceleration of computer vision uh, with, with the adoption of synthetic data. I see. So you'd actually been thinking about synthetic data for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should say, um, I don't know if, if you, you know about my, my previous company we were, we were talking about is um, Crowdflower and became Figure 8. Yeah, and yeah. we did a lot of um, data collection. I think it's funny. I, I think it was sort of similar experience to you of actually looking at conference papers and realizing they're kind of all built around um, the same data set. Almost That's it felt right. like the research was based on the data sets that were available, which feels totally backwards, right? You know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's especially like, as you know, as a, you know, just starting out like grad student researcher, you, um, you're the one that ends up spending a lot of time with the data sets. So you realize how 
kind of messy they are and idiosyncratic they are. Absolutely. Um, and um, I would just also add that, you know, a lot of my work was in, in during my PhD was in sort of Bayesian models. So there you have this notion of prior belief, you, you know, then estimate your posterior from that. But, you know, in deep learning, you kind of, it's not sort of that easy to establish a prior. And, and I actually think in a way that you can really control. And, and I actually think synthetic data, at least for computer vision, the data itself can actually act as a really interesting prior. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's connections there that I, I think I took from, from my own work of wanting to think about how to incorporate that. And, and simulation is one, one aspect of using data to generate that, that you know, prior, so. Well, so, you know, we always want to make this show for people that work in machine learning, but aren't necessarily like dom domain experts in every... Um, sure, sure. Maybe you could like explain um, like what synthetic data is and... Um, yeah, absolutely. Your take and how, how your system works today and then how you imagine it working in the future. Yeah, so the way we're talking about synthetic data um, is basically data that is generated from, let's say, a game engine or something that doesn't come from the real world that's sort of artificially generated. And of course, people talk about synthetic data in NLP as well in generating you know, fake text or text that's rel relatively useful there. But for, for our purposes in our startup, we're primarily focused on computer vision. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what we try to do is we try to create these very photorealistic virtual worlds. We extract images from them. And then the nice thing about doing that in a simulated world is that you can encode some of the things you need for supervised learning uh, in computer vision, like the annotations and all that stuff directly. So right. you can sort of help bypass that part of it and then help sort of streamline that process. So that's what we're focused on. Um, and you know, for, we've been at it for close to four years now. And essentially mm -hmm. we're trying to uh, see where synthetic data works really well um, and how to push the boundaries there, so. So where, where does it work well? Like how, um, how real is it? <laughs> yeah, great question. Uh, I like to think of what is a narrow problem and what is not so narrow, right? So I say narrow AI all the time and then think things like conveyor belts, right? Let's say you're, you know, processing, you know, certain types of food items, things like that. You're not going to see a random golden retriever jump on or <laughs> things like that. Like the diversity of that scenario is not that large. I think there, synthetic data really shines. Um, that's one of those places. Um, and of course, people are using it for really complex scenes like self-driving cars and things like that. But I, I would say if you want to think of a heuristic, the more narrow the problem, the more synthetic data will play a role. But of course, on the other end, there's attempts that we'll make to try to create that diversity. Uh, so the way we think about it as a company is, is how do you create diversity and how do you scale that? So we incorporate a lot of proceduralism in, in our world. We think about how to procedurally generate meshes, uh, geometry, 3D models, things like that, how to automatically change the terrain, all that stuff. That's really a big focus of, of our work. And then understanding how you can quantify that uh, gap between synthetic and real data through benchmarking of algorithms. And that's where we use a lot of WANDB as well to understand that. So how would it work? Like, it, say, I'm trying to imagine like what what I might be doing where I would want to come to you. Or you can tell me like a real case. Yeah. Like, you know, if I'm trying to do like factory automation, since you said um, conveyor sure. belt. Yeah, yeah. I want to like, you know, classify does this machine look um, like in a normal state or like a broken state? <laughs> right, right, right. So I'll give you an example I can yeah. talk about a little bit. Um, yeah. So one, one problem is uh, this company we're working with called Blue River. Uh, they're trying to solve this problem of being able to identify weeds 
in a in a crop field. And it turns out that like if you were to able to target the herbicide you use, you can you know reduce the amount of herbicides by like ninety five percent, right? Mm-hmm. So you know farmers are just spraying it all over. So so for what we've done on our end is that we've created an environment where we actually procedurally generate weeds with different vegeta- vegetation stages and all sorts of things like that, uh, and and then be able to then automatically annotate that like via a segmentation mask and then train an algorithm and show that you know we're getting x amount of improvement uh, another example i can talk about is 7-eleven uh, we're working with them where we're actually uh, creating a retail store uh where, with all these items and there they're interested in things like you know activity understanding grasp uh, pose uh detection things like that uh, grasp intention um, there, and so there we create, you know, we have our own motion capture studio. So we actually have a lot of really cool animations that we can generate from there. And then, so we create all that simulated data and then all of that has perfect ground annotations and we feed it to them uh, that they can basically download and then use to train their own algorithms. So, so what's the point where, um, I mean, both of those, th- those are great examples. Um, mm-hmm. Total sense. But it also strike me as kind of tricky to like set up, like to, to make it really realistic. Like what's the sort of scale that you need to be at for this type of approach to make sense? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's, it depends ultimately on their data set they're benchmarking again. So actually when we work with companies, we, we often ask, um, can you share at least an evaluation real world data set that we can benchmark against? So oftentimes the first iteration that we run and create this environment might get you a certain percentage, like, you know, 60% of the real data baseline. The real data baseline being if you were to train the same algorithm on the real data only, what is, what is the sort of thing you would get from that? Um, and, then, and then we keep iterating and improving. And we have ways of, you know, finding out where the gaps are in terms of the synthetic and real data. And then we have a whole team of procedural artists uh, from the game industry that actually work to develop better ways of actually creating more diversity within those scenes. So it's not something that happens instantaneously, uh, but it is something that once you build it, it's there forever. <laughs> so you can just keep generating more and more data and iterating on that. So the early parts of our company was just trying to create that infrastructure and then being able to have a streamlined process of imp- uh, iterating on that. Um, the way I like to think about it is sort of a virtuous cycle. We generate the environment, we collect data, we benchmark it, and then we iterate again and again and again until we get to a point where we're happy with the synthetic data. But on the first time, it's usually never, a, you know, unless it's like a very simple, narrow problem, uh, you usually don't get up to the, 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 to the same performance. Um, and then, you know, depending on the problem, you'll, you'll look for different things in terms of what to improve. You know, you might miss a certain type of orientation of an object, or you might have zoom levels that are off that you didn't account for. Do the images that you generate look like extremely realistic or like, is that really important to, to making it work well? Or I, I think if I had to choose one, um, diversity is more important than photorealism. And so I'm defining photorealism as sort of the, the way people think about it in computer graphics, where you're sort of modeling the the, rate, the light rays bouncing off of every you know part of an object and calculating that and that's how you get those sort of CGI level realism because I do think the technology that's coming out with the latest version of Unreal Engine and Nvidia is coming out with a global illumination sort of you know system that is just going to be 
happen and GPUs are getting more powerful. So that level of realism is there, but the hard part is diversifying the content. So if we just have the same character in an environment doing everything, it's not going to work, right? So how do you actually create hundreds or thousands of variations of that character model with different behavior and things like that? That's been really the core focus of how we're, we're thinking about our technology. I see. And this must be really hard, but like if I came to you <laughs> And I, you know, I was like, hey, I want my accuracy to go. Like, how would you even think about that? Like, what kinds of performance gains do, do you predict? Yeah, well, uh, let, me, let me answer that question in two ways. Uh, one way is there are scenarios where the only thing that could really work is synthetic data. So let's say you have a conveyor belt of, you know, I don't know, ceramic mugs, and you need to also have an annotation around how much they weigh. Right, uh, it, it, you could potentially actually estimate that with synthetic in a synthetic environment because you might understand the materials and you can calculate that. While it might be hard for a human annotator to look at that and be like, "This is 37 grams," right? So there are scenarios where actually it, it can only sort of seem to work <laughs> with with a, a sort of a ground truth thing. So there's yeah. there's an advantage there. Um, it, so in terms of performance, I think it really depends. So I, I can give you off the top of my head. For the narrow cases, you're essentially looking at 90, you know, 0 0.99, 0.98 mean average precision for things like that. Uh, for when you're starting to talk about much more complex things, we released a paper called Rare Planes, where we actually, uh, you know, released with Cosmic Labs, a huge satellite, synthetic satellite image with airplanes and, you know, all, all that stuff that's already been annotated in the synthetic uh, version of that. And there, you know, Synthetic alone will sort of give you like 65 to 70% of the real baseline performance. But then what we do, and we would like to advocate for this, is that there's several things you can do on top of that. One is transfer learning. So you can actually just take 10% of the real data, and then you start getting into the 95% of the performance of the real world data, just using 10% of that. And then you also have things like domain. Sorry? I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. So you train on the synthetic data first and then you transfer to the non-synthetic data? Yeah, you take the real world, just 10% of the real world data and you fine tune it off of that. So you, you, you can either pre-train it that way. What's that? The final step, you fine tune it on. Yeah. I see. Exactly. And then you get much better performances. Um, and of course, that 10% comes from the real world training set, not the test set. Uh, mm -hmm. And so there you can, so the fine tuning step, I think the fine, the way I look at why that performance gets up to 95% is that I think you're feeding the sort of prior version of what the algorithm thinks the world should be. And then all the sort of noise that comes from the sensors and then any unique variations of that can be sort of transferred in that fine tuning step and sort of sort of taking that fuzzy vision and then sharpening it with some real world data. Um, just so, understand, so you say 10% of the training data. So what it, did you take the other 90% and use it in the like initial model? No. So we would just randomly sample 10% of the real world training data uh, for the fine tuning step. And then we'll just, we'll first train it off of just synthetic only. Right. Uh -huh. And then, so we train it off of the synthetic data first and that gets us to something like 60 to 70%, at least in the airplanes scenario, which is uh -huh. a bit complex. And then when we take just 10%, randomly sampled from the training data set in the real world, uh, real world images, then mm -hmm. we get to the same 95% of, if you were to train on 100% of the real world data. Oh, I see. So you're saying it's like kind of 10 times as efficiently using yeah. the label. You're, you're saving a little bit of, you know, 90% of the real world data, uh, you know, n needs. 
Yeah. And presumably if you used all the real world data, you'd make an even better model than we found it actually tapers off a bit after 10%. After 10%, it tends to taper off. I mean, you, the, the diminishing returns, which, which is what I'm saying. Um, and, and, uh, but of course, yeah, they're still there. Uh, but, you know, again, this is one scenario. Um, different scenarios have different performances. And it really actually depends on the data set you have at the end of the day. Like, I think, I think other people point this out all the time, like not enough people focus on the data itself. And if, so if your data set's really wonky, who knows what you can train off of it? Well, who knows if the benchmarks even are useful there at that point? Uh, so there's a lot of you know, things to consider, but generally we find that fine tuning helps. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up was domain adaptation, which is the sort of you know, set of algorithms in computer vision that try to transfer the statistics from real world images to synthetic images. So algorithms are like image to image translation, where you can, you know, th maybe think style transfer, sort of take that from the real world images and try to incorporate that noise, interesting real world noise into the synthetic images themselves. Oh, interesting. Can you, can you really see that in the image? Yeah, yeah, actually. I mean, NVIDIA has done some great work on this. So NVIDIA has de definitely done a lot of good work in domain adaptation. Um, and then at these computer vision conferences, it's been a really active area of research. Uh, and it's sometimes not that distinguishable. What you find is more texture differences versus shape differences. Uh, as you can imagine, those are probably more difficult things to transfer. Uh, but, but it does help. It definitely does help for certain scenarios. Yeah. Interesting. So it's, I mean, I think the first thing you said when we were talking is, you know, you, you envision this as being like a tool, um, for people to use, but it sounds like maybe today you sort of need to involve real artists, right? So I, I would assume that the interface isn't really like a tool that I, you know, it wouldn't be like a TensorFlow. <laughs> that I no, 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 like, no. <laughs> so yeah, I guess like, yeah, what's your plan we, we, to kind yeah. of bridge that, that gap? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. So the, um, you, you can almost think of it like a, a downloadable video game. Right. At some point, if you build an awesome enough environment and we're building out a whole UI and productizing that process. So you can imagine these virtual environments living on the cloud somewhere. And then you have an API that allows you to tweak certain things like lighting, time of day, how things are spawned, all of that stuff. And then you'll be able to collect your own data that way. Right. So it's not so much that we give uh, people the ability to create their own 3D worlds as much as we'll create it and give them access to this huge environment that allows them to collect as much data as they want uh, and to sort of see how far we can push that. Uh, and I, it, 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 it's, we're still building that out, but I'm hoping that once we start doing that and we set the paradigm for that, other people will follow and understand the value of that uh, when it comes to uh, computer vision. And yeah, so hopefully that's, the, that's how, and, and you know, there's some really other cool ideas too, like stuff around medicine stuff where you're actually, if you can create an environment that has a lot of really interesting ways you can modify it through API calls or some scripts, you can then imagine a reinforcement learning algorithm that can explore and exploit a whole range of parameters to figure out how to actually get the best synthetic data, right? Where the reward function is tied to, let's say your mean average for, for, you know, precision and things like that, so. So I'm curious, like in your company, is it mostly sort of like artists making this stuff or is it mostly machine learning people or is it graphics people? Yeah. Like what's the composition of... Um... Yeah, it's it's a very interesting mix. One of the you know best things about uh, working um, with all these folks is that they come from a wide range. So we have uh, 
procedural artists, we have your standard technical artists. So procedural artists will be able to do some amazing things with geometry and create all sorts of geometry procedurally. Um, we have people who understand how to create procedural textures, materials on those 3D. So a lot of game developers, we have mm -hmm. animation people, we have to, to monitor motion capture. Um, we have game engineers to sort of be the glue that puts all the stuff together. And then we have a whole team of deep learning people uh, who actually benchmark that data. And so the so content is generated from one side of the company, gets fed to the ML people, and then they're like, eh, it's great, no, it's good. Like, you know, we need to do, you know, this is not working, this is working, and then it goes right. back. And so there's a constant conversation between these two groups of people where we're always trying to improve the data and understand what's missing. Did the ML people do any of the image generation now, like with GANs and, and other techniques? Like, is that, have you started to do that or is it mostly sort of more classical procedural um, generation? I'm not, I'm not super familiar with the field, so I don't know. how. Oh, yeah. Um, we've tried some of the adversarial stuff. Uh, it's not easy to get GANs to optimize. There's a lot of, you know, issues of mode collapse and things like that. So the adversarial networks, uh, we, we, you tend to use that more for domain adaptation. So you can imagine those techniques where you know you're trying to d create no distinguishable difference between the synthetic and real data that those gans can be sort of very useful there uh we're, we are still actively doing some r d on geometry creation uh there's a really cool paper out called polygen from DeepMind that does some cool work on that space but um yeah it, it's it's right now we're, what we're trying to really focus on is trying to create a whole suite of procedural tools uh, that are based off of tools like Houdini. I don't know if you've heard of Houdini before, but it's a, a way to create procedural geometry. Uh, and then we, we, we've done a lot of good work with that. And uh, at some point, we want to move more towards a, a, a system where we can just train off of our current library of 3D models, which is really large right now, and then, and then be able to generate new models there. But I think it's still a little bit more R&D that's necessary to get that stable. So... That's my guess, but I don't know. Maybe somebody has an amazing algorithm out there that works all the time. But yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. And so most of the models that you're actually building are vision models, it sounds like. Yeah, we're, we're primarily focused on vision. I think, and, and the reason why is because, you know, we, as much as we'd love to do RL-based things, uh, vision is nice because it doesn't have to require the kind of physics necessary in a game engine, which, you know, what we use is we use Unreal Game Engine to build our platform. Uh, and there the physics is, isn't as uh, accurate as you would need to get the right RL stuff working. Um, so we're waiting until that becomes more mature before jumping into an RL. But right now, computer vision is our primary focus. So Interesting. You're waiting for a good physics engine to do RL. That sounds like a real opportunity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But once we, we can sort of create these unbelievably rich, realistic worlds, then incorporating the physics will sort of be the next step. And then, you know, then we'll get like a, uh, you know, uh, a cute little dog running around in the field, <laughs> jumping over rocks. <laughs> so that'll be I'm curious. I've played a little bit with Majoko. Like what, what is like, what makes that not something that you could use for this, this kind of thing? It's just this, you know, and I, I don't have as much familiarity with that uh, platform as well, but what we love about the Unreal Game Engine is that they, it is such a powerful suite of tools, and it is capable of a lot of stuff, a lot of, uh, it, you know, huge scaled worlds, um, really, really being able to have high performance 
uh, photorealism, you know, with, especially with the new Unreal Engine coming out, you're going to be able to get near photorealism in real time. So all that stuff is just, it really allows you to create rich worlds. And I, some of the other platforms that I've seen really aren't built for that uh, in the same way, in my opinion. So the, the, I was looking for the most robust system to build all of this stuff to, to be able to, one of the cool things we do is we, we for example, generate huge cities. So we'll take things like OpenStreetMap, geospatial data, things like that, and then we'll generate you know, a, a big part of Manhattan, for example, and that takes us a, you know, a few days to just put it through a system and then out pops this fully virtual 3D world that you can walk around in. So this is stuff that like, you know, the, I think the Unreal Engine is quite well suited for. Switching gears slightly to the, the ML team, because I think that's going to really mm -hmm. resonate for people um, listening and watching this. When you, you've now been building models for customers for four years, I guess, which is probably longer than, um, or at least like building proxy models, um, yeah. doing ML for like enterprise and production. And I, I wonder like, how have your processes and tools changed over the, the years that you've been doing it? Yeah, so I just want to caveat this by saying that we don't try to actually create models that like are going to be used by everybody in the world or, or sort of a production. We use we, we train models for the purpose of understanding how good our synthetic data is. So, you know, unfortunately, like we're not spending all our time pushing the boundaries on the next version of, you know, uh, transformer architectures like we're not we're, we're, we're not as focused on that for example but we're, we're more focused on trying to understand and, and i actually think it's a different way to think about uh optimizing your model of course you can optimize it through hyperparameter searches you know messing around with learning rates all sorts of things like that but actually the way we do it is that we'll try a few things here and there in terms of the hyperparameters but we're really focused on what the data tells us and so we can quickly go back and, you know, within a few days, make considerable changes to the data we have. And then that's almost how we think about tuning our model and improving mm -hmm. it. So we're taking a data first approach in terms of optimizing the performance of our vision models. And we do it for the benefit of the customer. Uh, we want to be able to show and prove to the customer that this data is valuable and that's useful. I mean, I think a lot of our, um, that'll resonate with a lot of the people that that I've talked to. I think mm -hmm. most, most people in the real world tend to focus a lot on like picking and choosing the data to make the models um, work well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, have your systems evolved for doing that? Like obviously these weights and biases. <laughs> I think that's how we got connected. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, what other tools do you use? Yeah. So uh, yeah, weights and biases is awesome. Uh, we love it. We've been using it a lot for understanding how our models are performing. Uh, but for us, uh, we have our own data center. So we have our own cone location system. And then we use something called Polyaxon to orchestrate all of the experiments. So let's say you want to run 20 or 30 experiments. We have a system like Polyaxon that orchestrates all that. But it's also tied to 1DB. So we get all sorts of cool metrics and understand how the model is doing. And we can plot out a lot of stuff. We've also created our own customized dashboards to understand the difference between synthetic and real data. Um, and there's some really cool things you can do with some of the new transformer architectures that can generate visual uh, attention maps to understand some of the differences between the synthetic and real data. But at the end of the day, a lot of it is around that 
part of just trying to get the synthetic data. It's like all focus on improve the synthetic, improve the synthetic data. And then once we get it to a point, then, then we feel good and then we can start doing crazy things with it. Like, okay, you, this edge case that never happens in the real world, uh, we'll, we'll create it, you know, or this perspective all of a sudden has changed and you can't, you know, you need a whole new data set where the camera angle is now different because it's, it's, it's in a different place. Well, okay, we'll generate all that. So there's things like that, that, um, you know, that, that we also do a lot of. And so it's a relationship we have. And then, yeah, and then, so those are roughly the tools. Um, you know, we're not like a huge startup where we have like 50 ML people like, you know, but it's, it's a pretty nice pipeline. And also our uh, data is, is all API driven. So, you know, we just literally a few lines of API code, we get the data we need. And then it's streamlined into this whole orchestration of experiments. And then once we get the performance of that, and then we have our, you know, weights and biases and dashboards and, you know, all these nice visualizations to understand where the differences are. Do you, do you use uh, TensorFlow or PyTorch or something else or, or all of them? We're, we're PyTorch fans. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, TensorFlow is great for production stuff, but, you know, PyTorch is just so uh, nice in terms of debugging. Um, and so there's a, a lot of stuff. And it's just also kind of a culture thing. You start off with PyTorch and then, you know, making the switch to TensorFlow is a little bit hard. Uh, but yeah, so most of our stuff is in PyTorch. Uh, well, so you, yeah, you so started with PyTorch like four, four years ago when you started? That, no, that no, 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 no. Four, well, keep in mind, the first year is a little bit like... Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> swimming in the open ocean, trying to find the island. Like there's a little bit of that that happens, right? Um, but, you know, and of course, PyTorch has matured a bit uh, over the years. So uh, definitely there was a little bit of just, just trying to get the other stuff working. Um, but yeah, so, so in the past year, year and a half, it's been PyTorch primarily. Cool. Um, well, thanks so much. This, is, this has been um, super interesting. We, we actually always end with two questions. Um, okay, sure. The first one I'll tell you. So, so what is one underrated aspect of machine learning that you think people should pay more attention to than they do? I mean, given that I, I work in synthetic data, I, I'm a bit biased yeah. here in my response, but I really think that as much, as, as much time as you can spend on the architecture, sometimes it's really just the data that is an issue that, that you know, and so I, I, I think people need to think more about the data and what that data looks like and understand what you're working with and, and the biases inherent in that data. So that's a big thing. When people come to you, do you feel like they, there's like a co common misconceptions they have about synthetic data? A lot of people are skeptical, right? A lot of people are skeptical, like, can this really work, right? So a lot of the work that we had to do early on was proving it out. But mm -hmm. what's, what's really cool is that over time, a lot of the, the clients we've had have been just coming back to us, right? So they've been coming back and they'll be like, okay, yeah, we, we, we need this thing and we need this iteration. This is cool. Can you make things roll now? You know, can you make things jump? Like, you know, things like that. So, so it's been good in that sense. But early on, it, it was a lot of proving this out. And this is why we built this whole pipeline of benchmarking and showing how this works and how well it works. At the end of the day, they really just want to see metrics, right? And show that this, this data set actually improves some, something. All right, so the, the final question, like what's been the biggest technical challenge that you've faced getting, you know, making synthetic data work? It's an enormous engineering challenge. So if you're trying to create large worlds, um, it's not just about, you know, it, it, it requires a lot of optimization of huge amounts of data, which is not a trivial thing. Uh, and you have to organize it in a way that is also modular, 
so that you can swap this and that and create that diversity. So the right. hardest technical challenge was how do you scale diversity, which is what you need to do with synthetic data. Um, uh -huh. it, that, that is def definitely the hardest part. And, and, um, and of course, I, you know, to the point about the, the early, trying to create an early technology and, and trying to create something that where, you know, early on the market, like I remember going to investors and they're like, what's synthetic data? Like what? Like they didn't even understand the concepts. There's so many things we have to explain. And so there's definitely, but, but it's, it's now changing. And so that we're super excited about it, but I would say creating a system that allows you to scale diversity in a simulation environment is a significant challenge. And how do you do that in a way that is controllable uh, mm. versus just, you can throw adversarial networks at it and things like that. And that might help you to some degree, but at, at the end of the day, I do think that there is a role for control that is more driven by people uh, in terms of how these simulations work. Uh, so there's, there's something there, but it's not to exclude the adversarial stuff is really important and, and will play a role in the future. But I think you have front row seats to this. I mean, I, I would, <laughs> I would trust your assessment after. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Customers. That's, that's super. Cool. I mean, trust me, I would love to just throw an adversarial algorithm and generate everything, but it's, <laughs> I wish it was that easy. Yeah. But it, it's, it's unfortunately not, I think so. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. This is super fun. Absolutely. Thank you. I really appreciate it. When we first started making these videos, we didn't know if anyone would be interested or, or want to see them, but we made them for fun. And we started off by making videos that would teach people. And now we get these great interviews with real industry practitioners. And I love making this available to the whole world so everyone can watch these things for free. The more feedback you give us, the better stuff we can produce. So please subscribe, leave a comment, engage with us. We really appreciate it.